Hello, and welcome to Not Just Great Men, a history podcast brought to you by the History Department at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. I'm Jamie Mize. Today is the second episode of our second season, History's Lessons. This season, we will be exploring topics that our students said they wanted to know more about after taking our classes. Our second episode explores Reconstruction, the turbulent period of time after the United States Civil War when the federal government worked to reunify the nation and implement civil rights legislation. To learn more about the different phases of Reconstruction and the respective successes and failures of this historical moment, I spoke with Dr. Jamie Martinez. Dr. Martinez is a professor and history department chair at UNCP, where she specializes in American history, specifically the Civil War era. All right. Hello, Dr. Martinez. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about Reconstruction. I'm very excited to talk about this topic because I'm always so struck that our students here at UNCP seem to have absolutely no knowledge about Reconstruction, what it was, when it was. Um, And so I'm very excited to record this. So First things first, what was Reconstruction? So Reconstruction is, when we talk about it in the context of the American Civil War, is the process of figuring out how to bring the country back together politically. That's one of the major themes. And also how to transition from slave labor as a primary source and economic engine of the South to free labor, right? People working for wages as the economic engine of a region that previously had depended on slavery. So those are the two big issues of Reconstruction. How do we have one country that is, if not fully unified, at least not likely to have another secession crisis? And how do we become a country entirely Entirely dependent on free labor as opposed to having a section dependent on slave labor. To and you know, to, to your point about students often not knowing anything, I think reconstruction is one of these things that sort of falls in the gaps of how we organize classes. And it's really interesting at both the high school and the college level, there are places that teach US history to 1865, the end of the Civil War, and then pick up with Reconstruction. And then there are other places like us that teach through Reconstruction in the first half and pick up after Reconstruction in the second half. And neither approach seems to involve students coming away actually knowing about Reconstruction. Uh, so it's, it is a challenge either way. All right. Very, very good. So we do to 1877. Do you find that there are other issues too with students? Maybe professors get to the end of a semester and they kind of run out of time. And so I think that's often the case is that professors run out of time, professors and students run out of steam. Um, And so the things you do at the end often are rushed and not complete. And I think all of us have our areas of, of great interest and excitement and where we are most feel most confident teaching. And so for me, I'll skip and shorten other things so that I can make sure I have a couple of days to talk about Reconstruction because I think it's really important. But it's also even, you know, my Civil War and Reconstruction course, the students often come in wanting to talk a lot more about the war. And so you have to like work to get people interested. But I often think, um, you know, I go, go and quote George Washington and Hamilton, right? Winning is easier 
governing is the hard part, right? What do you do in the aftermath is the hard part of every war. And so if we, we phrase it like that and we present it as like, now what? We won, now what? Or we lost either way, right? There's a, there's a, some stuff that needs to be figured out. And I also really start, you know, one of the big questions of reconstruction is where does it start? We all generally agree it ended in 1877, but where does it start? And you can start Reconstruction during the war. There's a phase of Reconstruction that's going on during the war. That's the first phase. And then other people, so we're at the very beginning of the war. The very beginning of the war, um, you know, as soon as the Union Army is in place in any meaningful capacity in, in places in the slave states, enslaved people are running to them and saying, whatever you say the war is about, we want this war to be about emancipation and you've got to figure out what to do with us now. And also throughout the war, the question of how do you bring people back is an ongoing debate. So if we start the questions of reconstruction during the war and carry them through, that's one phase. Um, certainly once you have an emancipation movement, an emancipation proclamation, we're figuring out what does that mean? What is freedom going to look like in this United States during and after the Civil War? So that's f the first phase. But there's there's three other phases to Reconstruction that come once the f official fighting of the war is over. And there's the presidential phase, which is the first two years or so after the Civil War. There's the congressional phase, which sort of starts in late 1866 through the early 1870s. And then there's the kind of winding down of Reconstruction, uh, where Congress is really taking a step back and letting things play out. And Reconstruction begins to fall apart, or in some cases is deliberately dismantled, you know, starting in the early 1870s already. So the official end point is 1877, but it actually ends at different times and in different ways all across the South. The presidential phase is the shortest phase. And Andrew Johnson doesn't, he doesn't create a lot of fans for himself, does he, by the way that he handles presidential reconstruction? No, not at the time and not since. And it, it generally, <laughs> if you ask historians for their list of worst presidents, Andrew Johnson's going to show up on that list, regardless of anything else they might say. So yes, Andrew Johnson, of course, became president in April 1865 when Lincoln was assassinated and the war is finishing up. And there's, you know, this great outpouring of grief and trauma over the war, over the first presidential assassination. And Johnson's initial plan is let's keep it simple. Let's get things back to normal as quickly as possible. Let's let the South come back. Everyone go home, you know, leave your guns, go home, get back to work, run your farm, run your business. As long as things are peaceful and simple and straightforward, we'll just keep going from here. And most people actually are, are okay with that, right? They don't want a long drawn out process. They want, let's get back to normal as quickly as possible. If you went to war in 1861 or 1863 or whenever thinking the primary goal is the reunification of the country, then when the war is over, you want the fastest possible route to that. And so when Johnson says, you know, Southerners, you know, so Confederate soldiers go home, run your farms, restart your governments, manage yourselves. And the only condition here is that you have to accept emancipation. You have to, well, two conditions. You have to say, we're not going to secede again, right? And you have to accept that emancipation is a fact. And what happens over the year and a half to two years of presidential reconstruction is that white Southerners make it very clear they don't accept either of those things. We see the Southern states pass a series of laws known as the Black Codes that are designed to reinstitute as much of slavery as possible. 
right, to make it difficult or even illegal for African Americans to own their own property, to govern themselves, to, to employ themselves, right? So the Black Codes say every adult Black person has to show proof that they are employed by a white person, even if they were free landholders before the war. Now they have to have some sort of employment contract. These laws, and, and, and people can be arrested for vagrancy if they don't have a labor contract. And the labor contracts usually run from January 2nd through December 24th, with very little chance to negotiate at any point in time. So if you have, if you can't prove you're employed by someone, you can be arrested for vagrancy and then hired out to a local landowner and and the state gets the money or the county. There's apprenticeship laws that say that children of indigent African-American parents can be taken away from their parents and apprenticed to landholders who are supposed to feed, clothe, and educate them in exchange for their labor. And there's a lot of abuses of these laws. No. I know, shocking. <laughs> and it, where the the um, teenagers and and older children and and children old enough to be useful on a farm are the ones being apprenticed out, and very young children are left in the hands of their parents. And even a couple of instances where like people in their early twenties who themselves are married and have children are gathered up as apprentices under these laws. So so there's attempts to to reinstitute as much of the labor system of slavery and to curtail the freedom of movement and the, the freedom to have. Be independent and economically independent, at least in the way that African-Americans imagined freedom would look in almost every state. And then you also see attempts to put the same people back in political power. Right. So the people who led the Confederacy, the people who led the southern states during the Civil War are almost immediately elected back into office to the point where where Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, gets sent. And you're, you're familiar with the story because it's Georgia, your home mm-hmm. state. Right. Mm-hmm. Georgia elects him to go back to the House of Representatives a few months after the war ends. And the House of Representatives says no. Right. We're not even we think maybe this guy should be in prison, but he definitely does not. <laughs> right. In Congress. Right. And so you see um, even the, the condition of secession is not an option anymore. And, and you're coming back into the country. The white South is really actively resisting. And then it becomes very violent because what, what we'll see is a series of attempts by African-Americans to hold political meetings, to demand voting rights and meaningful citizenship. And those meetings are attacked by white mobs. And so it's the violence and chaos of presidential reconstruction that about a year in turns a lot of Northern voters against the process. And they say, we wanted simple and and easy, but this isn't quite what we had in mind. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some historians have said, look, white Southerners were just a little bit more subtle about their resistance in that first year. Reconstruction would have been a lot easier in the end for them. They would have gotten a lot more of what they wanted right away. But instead, what happens is Congress attempts to do something and passes a civil rights bill in 1866. And President Johnson vetoes it. And the Civil Rights Act of 1866 is a fairly, you know, by certainly by our standards, right, a fairly moderate civil rights bill that's aimed at reducing the worst of the abuses of the black codes, right? It's not calling for full-on black citizenship or black voting rights. It's just these these basic things about, like, you have the ability to make your own decisions about your employment right, and, and what happens to your children and things like that. And the president vetoes it. And for the first time in American history, Congress overrides a presidential veto. So we see a sense that 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 Johnson is just not in step 
with what Northern legislators and Northern voters want. And they're, again, resisting the idea that the South can just come back to Congress and have an equal voice as if nothing happened. Do you think, does the fact that Johnson is from Tennessee, does that play any role in this? Or is it more of a personality? Both. Um, Johnson, yes. Johnson's a Democrat from Tennessee. Very famously opposed to secession, very famously refused to leave the Senate when his state decided to secede and put on the 1864 Republican ticket as a way to get Democrats to vote for Abraham Lincoln. And it worked. Um, No one expected him to become president. So he Johnson is not a fan of the planter class. He mm-hmm. has a very modest upbringing. His father was a tailor. He grew up in a kind of working lower middle class community. Not a fan of the planter class, but also not in any way interested in the well-being of, of formerly enslaved people when the war ends. And I think uh, he also kind of likes the power over the planter class that this position gives him. His plan for reconstruction says anyone with more than like 20,000 acres or some really you know, large amount of property has to come personally and request. I was about to ask him. that. I thought that was part of it. Yeah. So I think he gets off on that power. Uh-huh. Um, he definitely, you know, he he's not part of the part of the Republican Party. He's never really in step with them. And so in 1866, there's these congressional elections and he's going around the country urging people to vote against Republicans in Congress, even though he technically officially as president is the leader of the Republican Party. Um, and at one point, you know, he he brings several prominent generals with him and tells him, like, this is a unity tour. And at one point, you know, he get, he's getting heckled by the audience and he's getting more and more kind of aggressive and, and personal in his responses. And someone shouts out something like, why didn't you hang Jeff Davis? And he says, well, maybe we should hang Thad Stevens instead. And Thaddeus Stevens is the Republican leader of the House of Representatives. So we have the the president on the stage, military officials next to him, suggesting that people execute a member of Congress, a member of his own party. So it's personal as well. He's he, It's just his personality is very much very combative in response to all of this. It's very channeling Jackson, isn't he? When Jackson wanted, called for the hanging of uh, John C. Calhoun as vice vice president, but I think yeah, I think there's Tennessee. a lot of both from Tennessee. A lot of similarities there. Yes, indeed. It does not work in Johnson's favor, right? Uh, Republicans win huge majorities in the 1866 midterm elections, and. They come into Congress in March of 1867 with two goals. One is to take the reins of Reconstruction, and the other is to get rid of Andrew Johnson. Um, they accomplish the first, not so much the second. Uh, they attempt to impeach him. They do impeach him. They pass a law called the Tenure of Office Act, which is de- basically to protect the Secretary of War. The Secretary of War has been using the Army to enforce the Civil Rights Act to enforce Congress's reconstruction legislation. And Andrew Johnson is not happy about that. So Congress passes a law designed to protect the Secretary of War, and Andrew Johnson turns around and fires the Secretary of War. It's a weird law, 
and it's not clear that it actually that Johnson actually violated it. Uh, it's also clear that Johnson was a bad president, and maybe they should have found they could have just impeached him for not doing his job. But instead, they made up a law they knew he would break. Congress did vote to impeach him. The the Senate voted not to remove him. By one vote, he survived removal from office. So he continued to be president, but the Republicans in the House have a veto-proof majority at this point. And part of why the Senate didn't want to impeach, didn't want to remove Johnson, was that there was no vice president. And the next in line is a guy named Benjamin Wade. He's the president pro tem of the Senate. And everyone's like, he might be a little crazy. So we're not sure, even though he's a Republican and he's firmly in favor of Reconstruction. He's in his 80s and like is constantly challenging people to duels and stuff like that. Like, we're just not sure we want him to be president either. And also, we're not convinced this Tenure of Office Act thing was legal. So on the whole, like, we're in favor of Reconstruction policy. We're going to override his vetoes anytime we need to, but we're not going to remove him from office. And that's what happened. Um, the uh, So the other thing Congress does, like right off the bat in early March 1867, is a Reconstruction Act. To, and, and this issues enter uh, this this and brings us into the period known as Congressional Reconstruction, sometimes called Radical Reconstruction. But how radical it is, is a subject, of course, of great debate among historians. Congress has a lot of time to plan this law, right? They're, they're debating for months in advance of what they want Reconstruction to look like when they take the reins. And it goes from a very conservative plan of not too much different from what Johnson was doing, just a little more control. Uh, let's not let mobs interfere with black political meetings and kill people in the streets as it happened in Memphis, New Orleans, and a couple other places to really radical, right? There, there's plans for land confiscation, that the way we're going to remake the economy of the South is to take the land away from the planters and give it to poor people, give it to poor white people, give it to formerly enslaved people. Everyone gets a small farm. There's a plan known as the state suicide plan, which basically says, look, if your state voted to secede, we're going to take that seriously and say you're no longer part of the United States. You are a conquered territory and you do not have the rights of statehood anymore. And we're going to start over and we're going to give everyone new boundaries so that we no longer have a South Carolina. New boundaries, new name. Let's, you know, get rid of all of those state associations that might lead people to try to secede again and throw it out entirely, right? Congress I, don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever heard of that one. The other two, I've, I was familiar with that one. I've never heard of. So it's sometimes, you know, I think the official name is the conquered provinces or conquered territories theory, uh-huh. but sometimes it, it comes up as the state suicide. Okay. That you said you left we, and we've conquered you. And just like we made state borders in, you know, the territory we took from Mexico, we're going to make state borders out of the South, new ones. Okay, they don't do that. The Reconstruction Act of 1867 does institute military control over the South, splits it up into districts, and those districts follow state lines. So Virginia is its own district. North and South Carolina are a district. Georgia, Alabama, and Florida are a district. Tennessee, I think very savvy political choice, is left out of this. Mm -hmm. So the president's home state is not put under military control. But the states get to keep their own boundaries. And one of the the things they're supposed to do is write a new state constitution, write a new state constitution that explicitly repudiates secession and that gives African-American men the right to vote. And if they do that, 
and they hold peaceful, functional elections, Congress will start removing the troops and they'll get to come back and they'll get to participate in the presidential election. They'll get like full statehood status again. So there's a path for moving, you know, for moving out of Reconstruction. The other things that are part of it are to ratify the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery, and the new 14th Amendment that says African Americans are citizens of the United States, right? If you're born here, you're a citizen. There's a lot of other stuff in the 14th Amendment, but that's that's really the crux of it. So now, you know, if again, if, if there hadn't been black codes, if there hadn't been violence against black voters, there might not have been a 14th Amendment. But this is a really dramatic transition that if we think back 10 years to the Dred Scott ruling in 1857, where the Supreme Court said African-Americans are not citizens of this country, to 1867, Congress pushing out a 14th Amendment and getting the states to ratify it within a year, 1868 officially is the year it's, it becomes part of the Constitution that says, in fact, they are, that African-Americans are, that anyone born here is a citizen of this country. And there's a clause in there as well that says any state that deprives a male citizen of the right to vote will lose representation in Congress. And this is an interesting clause for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's the first time the Constitution uses the word male. Mm. It's the first time it's always implied before that. Mm-hmm. But it's the first time the Constitution explicitly says that some aspects of citizenship like voting and holding office, are really for men only. And they have to clarify that in 1868, because by then there's 20 years of women's activism calling for the right to vote. But it also, it's, it's something that gets used and brought up from time to time. You'll see civil rights activists in the 20th century using it, um, particularly in the um, 1820s, to try to get Congress to reduce, in the 1920s, to get Congress to reduce the representation of the southern states because they're not letting their African-American populations vote. So it kind of rears its head from time to time in this interesting way. But the main point is that if you're a citizen, if you're born in this country, you're a citizen of this country, right? That universal birthright citizenship, regardless of your previous status of servitude. So Congress takes over. And a key strategy of congressional reconstruction is to create Republican coalitions that will control the South. So I said earlier that Reconstruction sort of ends at different times in different mm-hmm. states. Partly it's the process of, of satisfying all the conditions so that the troops are removed. Mm-hmm. And partly it is we consider a state in the process of Reconstruction while the Republicans control the state legislature. And Democrats re- retake control of the state legislature at different points in time. It's as early as 1870 in Virginia. It's 1877 for the last couple of states. The Redeemers. The Redeemers are those Democrats who, who take control at the end. Right? But these these congressional Republican coalitions are going to lead at the state level and they're going to include former slaves. They're going to include African-Americans who were already free before the Civil War. They're going to include white Southerners who support Republican policies, people who had been members of the Whig Party in the 1840s and early 1850s who were in favor of things like government funding for railroads and other infrastructure development, public education. These are things that the Republicans are calling for at the national level and that these Reconstruction legislatures are actively doing in the southern states, in many cases for the first time. And so there are a lot of white Southerners who were in favor of those policies and who joined these coalition governments. Uh, there are also people who have moved south uh, Republicans who many of them soldiers during the Civil War and looked around and said, hey, this is 
a great place. There's great land here. The climate is a heck of a lot better than Minnesota. I'm going to come live here and be a much more successful farmer than I was where I used to live. And a lot of them are also going to join these coalitions. So there's only one state where African-Americans are actually a majority in the state government, and that's South Carolina. But there are black men elected in every state legislature under these coalitions. There are uh, black men sent to Congress. I think there, there's 17 congressmen and, and eventually up to six. Uh, there's there's maybe two senators. There's a lieutenant governor of Louisiana, right? So there's, there's significant and, and again, just dramatically is dramatic change to black representation at every level of government and then like local office holding and things like all over the place suddenly. And it's working pretty well. And, and things that a lot of Southerners had wanted done before the war right, are finally getting done by these coalition governments. Right? So you'd think, okay, great, right? We have schools. We have roads. We're rebuilding the bridges that were destroyed during the war. We're, we're, we're building the railroads. We're building hospitals that we didn't have before. Things like that are finally happening during Reconstruction. It's fascinating because I know you said that there is a debate about, you know, how radical, radical Reconstruction was. And of course there is, right? Because there's a debate about how revolutionary the Revolutionary War was, because we love that sort of play on words to frame our historical debates. And I can understand that, you know, people could say it's really not that radical because in terms of and I know we're I don't want to kind of trample all over where we're going, but in terms of like long lasting change that didn't happen immediately. And perhaps people could say that it's not radical. And, you know, you'll know this historiography better than I do, but that, you know, people could say that it's not that radical based on the fact that recognizing a group of people's humanity shouldn't be radical. But I do think I just can't imagine such a that's such immense change to go from being considered somebody's property to being an elected government official. And I, I don't I mean, it's just amazing. Yeah, I think the scope of the change and how quickly things change yeah, was just really dramatic. It was certainly recognized as dramatic and transformational at the time. And I think we would we would say the same, right? Even though to us, obviously, these people are people and they should be citizens and they should have voting rights. But that was a huge change based on what had come compared to, you know, just a decade before, even a few years before, right? Even at the end of the Civil War, there's not a consensus that black men should be allowed to vote. And so there's dramatic change in a very short time. And you can understand why that freaked out yeah. your like your old Democrat, your old guard of Southern Democrats, you know, that were looking around going, oh, my gosh, this is what we were. You know, this is what we were afraid of. This is Yeah, this is exactly why we could not accept Lincoln as a president, because we knew it would lead to black rule. And for them, anything that is a change looks like black rule. Right. And, and you know, just again, there are black men holding office all across the state. They're in the jury box. Boxes. They 
are not required to have the same level of deference in day-to-day interactions that they did during slavery. So yeah, it's a huge change and it's scary. And even if you like the public school down the street, the fact that some people are talking about integrating that public school, that's scary to you, right? So there are, and of course, the other thing that, that, you know, the other fly in the ointment to all of this is this costs money. So people who never had to pay taxes to the state or local governments before the Civil War all of a sudden have to pay taxes. And obviously, no one likes that, right? It's a sort of universal truism of American history. No one likes to pay taxes. We like stuff. We like government services. We don't necessarily want to pay for them. And so when the taxes seem to be getting really high and then there's people talking about how these governments, these new governments might be corrupt and part of what's going on is that there's a lot more money flowing through the system. These railroad companies coming in to build new networks are trying to grease some palms along the way. And sometimes they're successful, sometimes they're not. They're not any more successful in the southern states than they are anywhere else in the country. But there's more money flowing around. It's more obvious. And there's the very natural scapegoat of these former enslaved men in in the legislature. Everyone's saying, well, Obviously, they're not equipped to be good political leaders. They're not educated. They're not prepared. They're easy to manipulate. And this is a problem. And so Reconstruction begins to unravel in a number of different ways. One of the key factors, there's there's actually a couple of major successes in Congress. And so in 1868, Congress passes a 15th Amendment that says the right to vote shall not be abridged on account of race or previous condition of servitude. So enslaved, formerly enslaved and African-American men in general are going to get the right to vote. In 1870, the the amendment is ratified. That's a huge victory. But part of how Congress sort of sells it to the voters is once we do this, African-Americans can protect their own rights and Reconstruction won't be necessary. We won't need to put all of this work into it. So that's one reason why Reconstruction policy tends to wind down, why Congress's interest in intervention falls away, why the voters' interests fall away. They're like, okay, we've been promised we can go back to normal. Congress passes a Ku Klux Klan Act and holds a number of hearings focused on Klan violence, very high-profile hearings, including Black members of Congress testifying about the violence they've been subjected to for being members of Congress. In the aftermath of those hearings, the Klan goes underground. So it looks like the problem has been solved, which again makes it very easy for people to start ignoring the problem. In 1872, there is a, an internal movement of the Republican Party known as the Liberal Republicans, and they actually break ranks with the party. They support the Democratic candidate in 1872, and they're calling for the end to Reconstruction. They're saying Reconstruction has accomplished its objectives, but it's too ripe for corruption, so we need to move on. And they get reabsorbed back into the into the Republican Party after the election and end up essentially leading the agenda of the Republican Party moving forward. There's also a massive worldwide economic downturn in 1873, the Panic of 1873. We use the, the word panic to describe major recessions in the 19th century. And so if you're all of a sudden facing economic turmoil and concerns at home that you'd never had before, and people are telling you reconstruction is too expensive to begin with, and then those legislators down south are stealing money, that's going to turn you against it as well. So that those are some of the factors. There's also some key Supreme Court rules in like 74, 75 into 76 that begin chipping away at the 14th and 15th Amendments and making them harder to enforce. 
So it's very clear by 1875 that most of the states in the South have gone back into the hands of the Democrats. They've been redeemed in the parlance of the white South. And we often call this last phase of Reconstruction redemption. Two things happen in 1875. One is a civil rights bill passes Congress, a a really forward-looking civil rights act that calls for no discrimination on the basis of race in any public accommodation, including schools, but also private businesses that serve the public, like restaurants. Congress passes it, but explicitly pulls out any reference to enforcement. So why'd they do this? Well, The bill was written and championed by Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts, who was one of these like longstanding leading Republicans, longstanding, very famous member of Senate, sort of loved, sort of hated, but everyone knew him and he was dying. Every Republican member of Congress and even some of the Democrats went and visited him on his deathbed and they he asked every single one of them to vote for his civil rights bill. So they did. They voted for it, but they voted for this very toothless version of it that they had no intention of enforcing. That's a clear signal from Congress that they're done. They're out on the subject of Reconstruction. And then the other thing that happens in 1875 is that the Redeemers, the Democrats, win a heavily contested election in Mississippi through overt and extreme violence against Republican voters and elected officials and and very obvious fraud at the ballot boxes. And Congress and the federal government do nothing about that. So again, they're sending a clear signal that they're just done with this Reconstruction thing. And the states that are still in Republican hands, the Democrats look at that and they say, "Okay, we now know what to do to finish redemption. And they they create, actually, they create these rifle clubs. So the Democratic Party has its own paramilitary arm. And they also bring out the Klan and the Red Shirts and these other groups that were kind of underground. And in the elections of 1876 in Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida, we see this consistent and overt and public campaign of violence against Republican voters and Republican elected officials that ends with the Democrats taking control of those three states and Reconstruction coming to an end in a contested and very messy presidential election that has to be resolved by Congress. Right. So you think then that it was just the people that had really supported congressional reconstruction, the fact that they're getting older, the fact that maybe a large proportion of the voting public is just kind of exhausted by the whole thing, because it's not just reconstruction, but back to one of your original points about, you know, how everybody becomes unified again and how you solve the questions of labor. Those are questions that are being wrestled with during the conflict itself. And so, for a large proportion of the the public then, maybe even people that are sympathetic and, and believe that these voting and civil rights should be in place, that they're just kind of tired by it all. And they're, these things are happening very far away from where they're located, perhaps. And it's, yes, in the abstract, I care very much about these ideals. But in terms of my day-to-day life and how I perceive things are impacting me, they just didn't have the 
the interest in anyone? I mean, is everybody just tired, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, I think people are tired. People have lost interest. They weren't all that interested to begin with in the well-being of formerly enslaved people. They've lost what interest they did have. Um, Some of it, you know, this question of labor is really crucial because what seeps in is a little bit of nostalgia uh, for what the slave South might have been in somebody's mythical imagining of it. Because in the aftermath of the Panic of 1873, you have this labor movement in that's emerging in northwestern, in midwestern, and northeastern cities, really picking up steam. And there's strikes and there's unrest, and people are like, "Well, wait a second, maybe free labor isn't all that great. Maybe the slave South had it right, or at least why are we worried about them when we have our own problems?" Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I think it is the fatigue and, and this general sense that, like, let's okay, we've 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 done all we can, and let's let the South worry about itself, right? And again, we think we've set in place the structures that will allow African-Americans to manage things, to participate in government, and they do. Right? I think it's important to remember that when redemption happens, when, when the Democrats retake control of the former Confederate states in, you know, in the, the mid-1870s, they don't immediately eliminate black voting rights. That takes another 20 years or so. So at first, people are looking like Virginia. They've they've made a coalition government. Black people are still voting. They're still participating. Doesn't need to be so complicated. North Carolina, it was fairly calm and and, and orderly and not violent. And so let's just let them do that, right? Um, and I'll and and you know uh, Ulysses S. Grant, who was president, very famously said like the Republicans in New Orleans are begging him to send in federal troops, which had been done before. And he's like, the last time I did it, Northern voters did not like it. And and New Orleans does me no good if it loses me Ohio. I cannot keep doing this because the voters here just are sick of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happens in the presidential election in, is we have these three states that the outgoing Republican legislators sent one set of ballot returns to Congress saying that Rutherford B. Hayes, the Republican candidate, had won their electors. And the incoming Democrats sent a different set of returns saying, no, the Democrats, Samuel Tilden, won our electors. And Congress has to figure out which are the correct ones. Right? Best we can tell, Tilden probably won Louisiana and therefore should have won the presidency. But what happens is a group of 15 members of Congress, and I don't remember if they're all senators or if it's a mix, are appointed. It should be the House. It should be the House that decides. So maybe it's the House. Uh, but 15 members of Congress are chosen to figure out, to look at all the returns and figure out who gets them. And there's seven Democrats and seven Republicans and one independent. And at the last minute, Ulysses Grant gives the, the independent a judicial appointment And he's off the commission because he's no longer a member of Congress. And the only person available to take his place is a Republican. So big shock. The Republican candidate gets all of the votes and wins the presidential election. I am shocked. (laughs) Imagine this coming down to partisan politics. I just can't believe it. And what Rutherford B. Hayes does was known as the Compromise of 1877. He gets the presidency. The first thing he does is pull all troops out of the South. And basically say, okay, Democrats, you're going to run the South from now on. The Republicans are mostly going to run the national government for the rest of the century. There's also some things like Hayes promises to appoint a Southern Democrat to his cabinet. And there's some very specific earmarks that are going to go to developing the South. You know, it's it's very interesting because if we can see again that the 
the climate of the country shifted and the way the Republican Party is shifting away from I'm using the military to defend the voting rights and civil rights of formerly enslaved people to I'm mostly using the military to put down the labor movement and eliminate as much of native resistance in the West as I possibly can. We're seeing that shift really come about with the end of Reconstruction. That was going to be another question that I had, because I think a lot of times we talk about, you know, the Civil War and Reconstruction as if those things are happening kind of in a vacuum and that the stuff that's happening now in the West, like we almost bifurcate the country and we talk about these things as very separate, even though it is all happening at the same time. And it's all happening within this larger context of manifest destiny and and all of that. And so I was going to ask if that was another kind of thing going on in terms of voters' minds and politicians' minds about why do we want to expend all this energy having the army in the South when we need them to, quote unquote, conquer territory further west? Yeah. And I think, you know, if, if one of the, the main reasons for, for white Northerners, well, they were the only ones allowed to vote in 1860. But for, for Northern voters to choose a Republican president in 1860, the main reason was this is the guy who's going to keep slavery out of the West. This is the party that has is going to make the West have be a place for free labor, be a place where our system is going to flourish. And the war has settled that. Slavery is not moving into the West, at least not African slavery. I think there there's tragic examples of Native people being apprenticed in ways that, again, look very much like slavery yes. in the West. But what Northerners see is we won. We're, we're getting our version of labor and our version of what the economy and, and the American vision are going to look like in the West. Let's concentrate on that and stop worrying about the South. Let's, let's let them deal with their own problems. Well, and I one of the, the things that's so interesting to me as well is that you have people like O.O. O. Howard, who are leading figures in the Freedmen's Bureau you know, and seem kind of genuinely interested in addressing the issues of discrimination in the South. And then they still have the same sort of ideological framework that they're, you know, that they take with them out West when they're quote unquote pacifying Indians. It's so, it's so fascinating to me that these kind of, again, kind of going back to this manifest destiny impulse and how it encourages people to kind of act in ways that we don't think necessarily, you know, align. They don't make sense. I, I think, yeah, because their vision of what the American economy and American, you know, government and, and nation were going to look like was so specific and so focused on one thing. And it's this, this again, this free labor ideology. And that has to look like how white Protestant Northeasterners work and nobody else. <laughs> and so anyone who gets in the way of that is a problem. And there's a sense early on that, that black Southerners can be assimilated into that. And it doesn't work out as well as they had hoped, but they also don't get an enormous amount of time to try to figure it out. And so when they, when they are sent West, they're like, okay, well, people aren't going to assimilate. They aren't going to change. We're just going to have to impose what we want through force, through extreme force on as many people as possible. And then we'll also see, you know, part of that is, is this, what the West is going to look like. We, we think of the Americans moving West as being white European Americans, but there's also like this exoduster movement of people moving to Kansas, of African Americans packing up and leaving the South by the 1880s and saying, this is not working for 
for us. Let's go west. And so what Manifest Destiny looks like is not always a white Protestant vision of America either. It, it is it is more complicated and it's oppressed peoples than turning around and taking land from other oppressed peoples. Yeah, and I think that's why it's, it's, compl- it's complicated because it's a, well, it's just a complicated story to tell because of all of the different people that are involved and the various different, you know, kind of factors that are motivating them, histories that are motivating them, individual cultural experiences. But I also think that, you know, as you point out, it's just complicated history to tell because of it's not, it's not neat and compartmentalized. I think a lot of times people really enjoy getting their arms around the story of good versus bad. And when you start talking about the way that the the settlement of the West works, it's very messy. There is no there is no standard narrative of of good versus bad because you do have this movement of African American people that are very much involved in terms of their settlement, very much involved with the in the dispossession of Native people. Yeah, one of my grad school mentors always pushed back when people would say like the past is a simpler time. And it's like people are always complicated. They've always been complicated. There's never a simpler time, and, and this is certainly never going to be a simple story. Absolutely. All right, I have have one more question for you. And I'm going to apologize for it in advance because professional historians, I know we don't enjoy the woulda, shoulda, what could have possibly happened sort of question. The counterfactual stuff is yes. really hard. To we don't out. like them. We don't like them. And I, I know that, but I'll ask it in a different way. Do we have any idea what sort of plans Lincoln had for Reconstruction? And if so, like, how could that have possibly changed? The what so, question. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Lincoln had a couple of different wartime approaches to reconstruction. The Emancipation Proclamation was a wartime reconstruction plan because it came in two phases. There's this preliminary document in September 1862 that says we will emancipate the slaves in any place still in rebellion in January. And part of that is an incentive. Come back now. You get to keep slavery. That, of course, does not work. But then Lincoln comes up with and, and, and promotes what's known as the 10 percent plan at a later time that says basically when 10 percent of the voters who voted in favor of secession take the oath of loyalty and are ready to come back, we'll let you come back. Right. And everyone said that's ridiculous. That's not a representative government at all. And I think he knew that. But he was, again, trying to kind of drive these wedges and see if he could get people back. Lincoln did not present to the public a comprehensive reconstruction plan before he died. His second inaugural address, he's very much into conciliation and he talks about binding up the nation's wounds. But he also says, if the war must continue until every drop of blood drawn with the lash is repaid by one drawn with the sword, then the judgments of the Almighty are true and just. So it's not clear that he was going toward an easy or a harsh reconstruction plan. He liked to keep people guessing. His last public statement before his assassination, he called for, first of all, you know, Congress had already passed the 13th Amendment. He was in favor of that. He made very clear legal and and sort of moral arguments in favor of that. And his last public statements before his assassination, he called for some measure of black voting, specifically people who had been free and landholders before the war, but also men who'd served in the Union armies, right? The, and the vast majority of the 180,000 or so black Union soldiers were people who'd been enslaved, were people who were in the South. So we see Lincoln moving. 
And I think that's the key thing, right, is that Lincoln had a couple of plans and they evolved and they would have continued to evolve. He was pretty quick to change when something wasn't working. So I think his initial reconstruction plan would have looked very similar to Johnson's, but I think he would have changed the plan. And I think that that most historians would agree with this. Like he would have shifted tactics earlier than Congress taking over. And and, but it's it's hard to know what he would have shifted to and if it would have been any more successful. But I definitely think we wouldn't have seen presidential reconstruction unravel in quite the same way. So again, I apologize for the what if. I know, I know it's terribly cruel. I, I also was just kind of wondering too if the thought process among historians was that, you know, Lincoln would have had so much political capital having, you know, been a president that successfully, you know, won the war, got the, the country back together, that people would have been more patient as he worked on finding a solution that worked. Maybe, but I think people have pretty short memories when they're unhappy about things. Um, and, and, you know, Lincoln also w- brought with him would have would have brought with him all of the baggage of the the victory in, in, in terms of how the white South responded to him. Right. He was a tyrant yeah, in, in yeah, a lot of people's true. perspectives. So there might have, you know, initially they were like, hey, this Johnson guy is going to be easier to work with. There were some people. It's interesting. There were some people w- right after the assassination who said in, in white Southerners said, we're going to have a problem now. Whatever Lincoln would have done, they're going to be a lot worse to us mm-hmm. now that he's dead. Right? Mm-hmm. But the, the national outpouring of grief and sort of demand for retribution actually died down very quickly. And people were like, OK, now what? Let's move on. And so it's hard to know. Right. It, it's one of those things that's it's impossible to project. I think Lincoln would have had a certain cachet. Absolutely, of having won the war. And the Republicans win elections on that for the rest of the century, right? Mm-hmm. The the Republic, they call it waving the bloody shirt in the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. Vote how, mm-hmm. and everyone's told to vote how you shot, right? And, and African Americans vote for Republicans until the 1930s on the basis of that being the party of Lincoln. I think it's easier to make Lincoln a, a great figurehead and, and rally and cry when he's dead. Living people tend to be messier. <laughs> and so That's I think fair, you know, he yeah. becomes a martyr at this ideal moment for his mm-hmm. image. Um, mm-hmm. in, in, whereas if he'd had to deal with the mess of reconstruction, mm. people would have fallen away from his memory maybe a lot more quickly. Mm. Very good. All right. Is there anything else? I mean, that was, that was pretty, that was, that was very good. Is there anything else that you feel like we need to know about reconstruction that I haven't asked? I don't know. Um, I, I, I think it was like, pretty thorough. <laughs> just as a reminder, one of the reasons why we recorded this episode is because students listed it as one of our students listed it as one of the things that they wanted to know more about. And so that I think we have accomplished here today. Assuming we can get them to listen to it. <laughs> So we'll all have to do a really good job of of publicizing and promoting and see if we can get students to pay attention and and listen to these things they said they wanted to know more about. Absolutely. Thank you for, for, for inviting me. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to hearing the other lessons of history that we're dealing with this season. Very good. Thank you so much, Dr. Martinez. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to Not Just Great Men. 
a history podcast brought to you by the History Department at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. Please join us for our next lesson when we will discuss the Vietnam War. Speak with you soon.